Well, this is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent. And during this Lenten season, we're taking a break from this long year plus long journey we were in through the book of Acts. We're taking a break to examine uh, Christ City's eight practices. These practices are pretty new for us as a church, but we believe, we think that they're really important for us as a church because these practices are things that have the power to unite us together as we very practically do things together and participate in things together. It has the opportunity to draw us into deeper community with one another and deeper love for one another. Um, Y'all may have experienced this before, how oftentimes in your life, if you think and reflect back, you can consider seasons when you had shared experiences with other people and how that opened you up to all sorts of depths of relationship that might not have been possible otherwise. Uh, for example, earlier this year, I joined up with a, um, a really intense sort of a boot camp style workout club or community, you could say. Um, and I've only been at it for a few weeks and I'm really, I'm really amazed and kind of shocked at how quickly I've developed really deep relationships with some of these other men who are part of this community with me. Um, we don't all necessarily look alike or think alike, uh, but because we have this shared experience that draws us together, we experience this, this really special bond together and we're growing in community and love for one another. And so that's, that's what we hope can happen here at Christ City Church. And these practices are also for you as a person. They're shaping you. They're moving you towards some end where you can recover your life, reimagine your purpose, and refresh your world. They're for us corporately as a community, shaping us into a people where people can show up here and find a place to belong and a place to know God. So this is the fourth Sunday of Lent. Like I said, so we're on our fourth practice. We've talked so far about choosing presence, about seeking health, about cultivating spirituality. And this morning, we get to talk about embracing diversity. Embrace diversity. So before we start the conversation, there are um, one or two sort of elephants in the room that it helps me at least just to kind of get those out there and acknowledge them. The first elephant in the room is that I'm a white dude, right? I'm majority culture in every single way. Nothing wrong with that. It just is what it is. Another elephant in the room is that in some ways, we are not yet a very a diverse church. In some ways we are, but we're not necessarily a very diverse church uh, racially or socioeconomically or ethnically or generationally, um, we are a diverse church when it comes to different ways of kind of viewing the world, like our sort of worldview or theology or philosophy. We're strangely and uniquely a diverse church when it comes to that. Um, so I'm excited to dig into this. I think this is going to be really, really important uh, for us to dialogue about. And I hope I hope this conversation today isn't like the end of a conversation, but it's a conversation starter. If you're in a story group or with your friends or your family here, I hope that we can continue these conversations together because I think that this practice um, is really, really important 
uh, for us to experience personally the fullness of what God may have for us in the world and for us to walk into more and more our mission and vision as a church. So here's the shape of this conversation. Uh, we're gonna look at this text, um, this really unique and sort of strange text in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're gonna use it kind of as a launching pad, um, an anchor for us to have some, some conversations, uh, implications for us. And so I have from this passage and for us, uh, four observations that I'd like to make, four observations. The first observation is that embracing diversity was a central practice for the early church. Embracing diversity was a central and significant practice for the early church. Like I mentioned, uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts, and we're going to pick that back up after uh, the season of Lent. And it's really important, um, if you've been with us during that sermon series, that provides sort of the context or the foundation for this letter of Galatians that Paul's writing to the church at Galatia. So uh, you may remember us talking about Paul's missionary journeys that he took, uh, sharing with people and inviting people to follow Jesus as Lord. Um, some of these cities, if you were with us for that series, may sound familiar, like Lystra and Derby and Iconium. Some of those may sound familiar to you. These are cities in this region of Galatia. So Paul's traveling around this region uh, that's predominantly made up of Gentiles, meaning people who were not Jewish. And all these Gentiles were wanting, when they heard Paul's message and when they interacted with him and saw his life, they were wanting to follow Jesus as their Lord, which was a really big deal because the Christian movement in the first century began as a movement within Judaism. And so now all of these people who are outsiders to the Jewish people are wanting to come in. They're wanting to follow Jesus as Lord as well. It was a really big deal. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's hard for me to overstate how big of a deal this was for the first century church. You may remember um, in Acts chapter 15, there's a record of the Jerusalem council, the first council of the church when Paul and some of his traveling companions go back to Jerusalem and they're sharing all these stories about all these Gentiles who are converting and wanting to follow Jesus. And there are all these conversations that are recorded for us and decisions that were made about what it looks like for Gentiles, outsiders to come in and be a part of this Jesus community. Now, all of this background is really important because underneath all of it, we see the early church practicing what we're talking about this morning, embracing diversity. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that entail? Now, I don't think that any of this background would have caught the Apostle Paul off guard because Paul was a really, really, really good Jewish man in the first century. He was intimately familiar with his scriptures, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, and this is a thread that is woven all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, we see that God makes humans. God makes male and female in his image and he loves them. He crowns them with dignity and worth and honor and value. They matter to God. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we see God gives this man, Abram, a promise. And it's not a promise just for Abram who would later become known as Abraham, 
Uh, but it's a promise that would extend to all people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. God's dream has always been for his people to be a diverse people. And this thread weaves all throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the place, all throughout these 39 books in the Hebrew scriptures. I wish, I may be the only one who wishes this, but that we had like hours to just kind of dig in and see this thread that's woven throughout. Um, And Paul is super familiar with it because he writes about it all the time. We see even in this letter, in the letter of Galatians, in chapter three, let me just show you a couple of instances. Galatians 3, verse seven, Paul writes, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. It's not just the Jewish people, but it's every person who has faith in Jesus is a child of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. These promises that weave throughout the Old Testament are for all people, every tribe, nation, tongue, language. Later on in Galatians chapter three, this profound and big and powerful uh, few verses. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. The promise is for you, and you are heirs according to the promise. And then this thread goes all the way to the very end of our scripture in the book of Revelation. The apostle John has all these visions. Rachel read one uh, this morning, and this is from the passage she read as a part of our call to worship. In Revelation 7, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. So I want you to see that this idea, this practice of embracing diversity is not this sort of novel, new, fresh 21st century idea that we have here at Christ City, trying to be unique and special and cool. This has been God's dream all along. This is deeply rooted in scripture. This has been a part of the church from the church's earliest days. Now I need you to see that. I need you to see how rooted this is because of the second observation I have for you that may particularly be challenging for some of you. The second observation from Genesis chapter two is this that embracing diversity is never easy. Embracing diversity is never easy. So embracing diversity was an important practice for the early church, but it was not easy at all for them to go about this practice. Important and significant and central to who they were as God's people, but it wasn't easy. In this passage, we see all that it stirred up for the earliest followers of Jesus. Look look again at at verse 11, Galatians chapter two. When Cephas or Peter, Peter has all these different names in the New Testament, it's a little confusing. Uh, When Peter came to Antioch, I, and this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face. What a crazy thing to say. Um, 
I think Paul is probably in Enneagram 8 by this verse alone. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This word opposed uh, comes from a Greek word that means I resisted him or I became hostile towards him. Paul is confronting Peter here. And this is a record of his confrontation with Peter. Um, why? Why is Paul confronting Peter? He lays it out for us. In verse 12, he says that before people came from James, so before these influential, important Jewish people came from Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, probably eating foods that weren't kosher and a part of his Jewish tradition. But when these important men from James arrived, Peter began to withdraw. He drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. And then in verse 13, we see that because Peter's a leader, he's an influencer. In fact, he's one of the most significant predominant leaders in the early church movement. Um, in the uh, Holy Catholic Church tradition, Peter is the very first pope of the church. So you see his influence in verse 13, that it wasn't just Peter, but other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I like how Paul says that. Even Barnabas was led astray. So you see what's happening here. Sharing a meal in this first century world was really significant. It meant you were deeply identifying with, deeply connecting with another person. It meant that Peter would have been, like I said, eating foods that weren't um, right or good for him to eat in his Jewish tradition. And he had no problem with that. He understood that the gospel, the reconciling work of Jesus meant that all people could be a part of this thing. He understood God's dreams um, expressed throughout the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. He had no problem with it until, until these important and influential people came along. And all of a sudden in his fear, he, he drew back in his, in his people pleasing, in his performing, he drew back. So Paul is confronting P Peter on Peter's blatant racism his not being okay with people who weren't like him. There's this crazy confrontation. Like it's, it's crazy to me that this confrontation is recorded for us in scripture, right? Like there's no spinning things for these early followers of Jesus. Like Paul included this in this letter and it's become canonized for us, this nasty confrontation about the first popes Racism against the Gentile believers. So you see here that embracing diversity wasn't easy for these early followers of Jesus. And I would argue that it will not be easy for us either. In fact, I think that if it is easy for you, if it is easy for us, then perhaps we're not really embracing diversity. Perhaps we're going after this facade of diversity, but it's not a sort of just diversity, a reconciling diversity, because going after that will never be easy. Look at the quote that I included in your bulletin. And this is a book we have available at the book table by Austin Channing Brown. I'm still here, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Austin is coming here uh, to lead a rabbit hole later this year. We're really excited uh, to learn from her and to uh, be able to sit with her. Now, this book I read in the past couple weeks 
super profound, super influential, so I encourage you to pick it up. This is from uh, Austin's book. She says this. In its true form, reconciliation possesses the impossible power of the lion lying down with the lamb, the transformative power of turning swords into plowshares. But instead of pushing for relationships that are deep, transformative, and just, instead of allowing these efforts to alter our worldview, deepen our sense of connectedness, and inspire us toward a generosity that seeks to make all things right, we have allowed reconciliation to become synonymous with contentedly hanging out together. If you pull back and look at kind of larger church trends, you'll immediately see that it's really trending right now in the church to talk about and to try to do multicultural church ministry. But as we look at that trend, we have to ask ourselves, is deep, just reconciliation happening here? Are we really embracing diversity or are we okay with merely contentedly hanging out together? Because really embracing diversity will mean that we have to engage painful conversations with one another that aren't comfortable, that aren't easy, in fact, some of you, myself included, we've kind of avoided those conversations for a long time, for our whole life. And if you have the option to even do that, to even avoid going there, to even avoid engaging the conversation, then it exposes something that I think is really important. It exposes that you live with a ton of privilege. That's not wrong. It's not bad. But it is important for you to see and important for you to acknowledge. You have to see that for many people, there's no option to ignore this or to not engage it or to not go there, to not experience and hear and be shaped by these painful stories from our past and from our present. For example, there are many people, many of you in the room, that as a woman, you've faced maybe every day what it's like to go to work and to work under the leadership of men where you wonder, do I really have a voice here? Is my voice heard? Do I have a say? Do they care about me? If you're gay, you've encountered the question before, is there a place for me? Is there a place where I can belong? Especially if you're a gay person who wants to follow Jesus, is there a place where I can be, where people love me and want to be in relationship with me? If you're a person of color, you can't avoid this conversation because you've wondered I have the, these stories, I have this history, and do people see that? Do they care? Do they want to listen? Do they want to go there with me? In this organization or this church or this business that I work for and I show up to every day, am I really valued? Am I really seen? Or I, am I just some sort of token person here? 
Many of you can't avoid going here, but some of you can, and that exposes the amount of privilege that you live with. And if that's you, and it is me, then what that means for us is that to embrace diversity, we have to listen a ton. And we have to hear stories that will be painful and hard, that won't be comfortable. We have to stop talking. We have to listen. Just recently, earlier this year, I read uh, this really important book um, by a scholar, theologian, leader, um, writer named James Cone, uh, a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Reading that book was, was painful for me. There are moments where I had to stop because I was having a sort of visceral reaction. And as I was reading that book, one of the things that I felt um, is I felt shame for not even knowing or acknowledging these stories. Like I grew up in Mississippi and I've also lived in Tennessee and in Texas, three Southern states where these atrocities were all too common. I took Mississippi history in high school and these are not stories that I heard. These weren't things that I was taught. These weren't things that I had to face. And some of us, unfortunately, have the option to ignore or to not engage these conversations or these stories. But I think that this painful part of our history, if we choose to ignore it, we're furthering the injustice. And we're inching further and further and further away from embracing this sort of just reconciling diversity. Because until we can go there, until we hear these stories, until we face our past, things that we've ignored or not acknowledged, we won't really be embracing diversity. We'll merely be contentedly hanging out together. Let me read this longer quote from Austin. It'll be on the screen. It's long, but um, I encourage you to try to stay with me, stay with Austin. Here's what she says. Our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. It's not a comfortable conversation for any of us. It's risky and it's messy. It is haunting work to recall the sins of our past. But is this not the work we have been called to anyway? Is this not the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth and inspire transformation? She writes, it's haunting, but it's also holy. And when we talk about race today, with all the pain packed into that conversation, the Holy Spirit remains in the room. This doesn't mean the conversations aren't painful, aren't personal, aren't charged with emotion, but it does mean we can survive. We can survive honest discussions about slavery, about convict leasing, about stolen land, deportation, discrimination, exclusion. We can identify the harmful policies of gerrymandering, voter suppression, criminal justice laws, and policies that disproportionately affect people of color negatively. And we can expose the actions of white institutions, the history of segregation and white flight, 
the real impact of all-white leadership. The racial disparity in wages and opportunities for advancement. We can lament and mourn. We can be livid and enraged. We can be honest. We can tell the truth. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is here. We must. For only by being truthful about how we got here can we begin begin to imagine another way. That's the thing I hope for us. I hope that we can truly engage this practice of embracing diversity. And I hope for all of us, especially those of us who live with privilege, can go there and can listen and can engage these conversations. This is in fact why there's an intentionality behind the order of these eight practices. The first practice Robin preached on a few weeks ago is, is choose presence. So learning what it means to be a present person, not performing, not so worried about how other people might be measuring up or what other people might be thinking of you, but, but simply being present with yourself, with God, with another person. And then as you're present with yourself, you can, you can experience seeking health. You can understand as you're present with yourself, like what do I need to be a healthy person in relationship with me in relationship with other people and in relationship with God? You can seek health only to the extent that you're a present person. And then as a part of your seeking health, you'll begin to experience cultivating spirituality, developing this sort of robust and deep relationship with the divine And then I think only once you've done all that work, will you be ready to really go here and really engage these conversations? If you haven't done that work, then it's going to be a facade. It's going to be some idyllic idea of diversity. It's going to be merely contentedly hanging out together. So that's why we've ordered these practices, even intentionally in this way. But I do want to clarify, there's a third third observation I have that embracing diversity is about more than racial diversity. Embracing diversity is about more than racial diversity. Remember this passage in Galatians chapter two centers around Peter's practice, Peter's shared experience with the Gentiles of eating meals together, of connecting with them over food So for Peter, it wasn't just being in a relationship with the Gentiles, being in in ethnically diverse relationships. For Peter, it was also experiencing diverse things, even through the food that he was eating. There's this beautiful passage at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Let me read for you just a couple of verses. Revelation 21 verses 23 and 24. The city... And John here is seeing this future city that's to come, the new heavens and the new earth. This city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. And then look at this verse. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So there's this future reality, this coming city And John imagines reality where 
The kings of the earth bring their splendor to be a part of this city. This idea prompted one author to ask the question, will the Mona Lisa be in heaven? Will the Mona Lisa be in heaven? It's not this sort of like ethereal ethereal reality when we're floating around on clouds with wings, but the new heavens and new earth is a very real place that will be filled with the most splendid aspects of culture throughout time and throughout the world. So experiencing diversity is about more than reconciling relationships and racial and ethnic diversity. Experiencing diversity may mean just engaging diverse art or engaging diverse foods. For me, um, recently I was convicted. Um, so if you've, if you've been around for a little while, you know that I, I really like to read books. And uh, I'm also, you, you may or may not know this, but um, I'm sort of like, sort of maybe moderately OCD. And so I actually um, keep lists of all the books that I read every year. And uh, I was convicted recently as I looked back on those lists at how many of those books were written by white men. And so I realized for me, like, hey, embracing diversity may mean reading books by people who aren't white men. In fact, this is like taking the nerd level up even a higher notch um, to help myself see this and visualize this and to help you all see it and visualize it and hold me accountable. Um, I actually graphed this and put it on a chart so I could see. Um, so you can see the, the trend line is moving in the right direction. So these are, these are um, percentages of books that I've read over the past few years that are not by uh, white male writers. Um, and so my goal this year and in years to come is to embrace diversity and to read books that are diverse for me and to be shaped, to be shaped by people who aren't like me and who don't think just like me. So I invite you to, uh, if you like to read books, um, embrace diversity. Um, like I've already said, I can't recommend this book enough. I'm still here. Maybe a great place for you to start. So, um, Here's why I think all of this is important, and this is my fourth observation for you. I think all of this is important because you're embracing diversity as an individual, and our embracing diversity as a people will produce a lot of fruit in your life, um, but it'll produce, in particular, two specific sorts of fruit that are really important for you as a person, as a human, as a follower of Jesus. But these fruits are also, I think, particularly important for us, for Christ City Church, and for this vision that God has given us to be a place where people can belong and a place where people can know God. And I've noticed these couple of fruits as I've been thinking about this practice in relation to my own story. And so I've been looking back at my own story and my practice of embracing diversity. And I see more and more these couple of fruits in my life. The first fruit is humility. And the second fruit that I think springs from humility is love. So years ago, if you would have asked me, which this is ironic and 
is funny. If you would have asked me, this would be a weird question to ask, but if, if you asked me, Drew, are you a humble person? I think I would have said, yes, I'm a humble person, which I think is a sort of ironic way to answer that question. Um, are you really humble? You think you are? Maybe you aren't. Um, but as I look back and as I dig deep in my story, what I realize is that I actually wasn't experiencing a lot of humility. Um, what I was experiencing was a lot of toxic shame. It wasn't humility. It was looking at other people and seeing the ways that I don't think I in relation to them measure up. And so it was me doing things, even if it wasn't for other people to see, so it looked like humility. Even if it was just for me to see, it was me doing things to show me that I matter, that I have value, that I have worth, that I belong. So I'd see someone and and think, man, you know what? I'm not smart enough, so I need to get this degree to prove to me that I am smart enough. Or I need to exercise more and run more miles. If only it's to prove to me that I can do it, that I matter, that I have value, that I have worth. And that's not humility. It may look like humility to other people, but as you peel back the layers, it's not humility. It's a lot of toxic shame. When it came to sort of worldview and theology and way of thinking about life and the world and God, um, I lived with a really small grid, kind of narrow box. And because I've always sort of been a kind person, like I may have looked humble because when I'm talking to someone who doesn't think the same way I do, I'd listen and I may ask questions. But internally, I was really quick to sort of peg them, peg them as someone who's kind of inside my grid or outside of it. And if I was engaging with a person who was outside of my sort of small box or narrow grid, like I really couldn't learn from them. Like I really couldn't shift my views on anything. Like I really couldn't listen and ask questions and really care about what they had to say and what they could teach me, what they could show me, their experiences, their stories, their knowledge. But as I've embraced this practice more and more, embracing diversity, and I look back at my stories, I see how I have lived in relationship with people now, more recently, who do think way differently than I do about things, and how my views on things have actually changed. When I peel back the layers, I can see how I have convictions, and that's a good thing, but I do kind of hold those clenched fist convictions like a little bit more loosely, which to me sounds a lot more like faith and a little bit like humility. I've grown, I'm, and I'm not there yet, and I never will be, but I've grown to be more, more and more okay with me and where I am and who I am, which allows me to be okay with you and to be in relationship with you, even if you're different than me, and to be okay with who you are and where you are to where we can really sit with one another in dialogue and be in conversation, share experiences, and you can learn from me and I can learn from you as well. Which also kind of opens the door to be in real loving relationship with people. I think that until you experience less toxic shame in your life and more humility 
you won't really be able to love another person. Toxic shame is inward focused and love is outward focused. So until you can start to dig through and sift through and do the hard work of dealing with some of that shame, you won't experience humility and experience loving relationship with another person. So those are a couple of fruits I've seen in me. Those are a couple of fruits that I've seen in many, many of you as we've sort of been on this journey the last few years together. And I think those are the couple of fruits that we need to experience more and more as a church. And we'll experience those fruits more and more as we go about this hard, not easy work of truly embracing a just diversity. That's my hope and that's my prayer for you as an individual, as a follower of Jesus, as a person, and for us corporately as a church. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for this dream that you have, that you love people from every tribe, nation, and language. And you have a dream of just diversity, not just sort of surface level, contentedly hanging out together, but of real just relationship and diversity in our church and in the world. So Lord, would you help us? Would you help us in our personal lives to do this hard work of embracing diversity, of building relationships that are just, that are meaningful, that are right, of listening well, of asking questions, of talking a little bit less, experiencing diversity in all the different things we do and enjoy in life. And as we go about that hard work, Lord, I pray that you would raise up in our church more and more humility and love, that we would be a humble people and that we would be a loving people and that this city and this world would be better because of our actions, because of what we bring to the table, a place to belong and a place to know God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.